If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We are currently in a series in the book of Matthew that we have entitled, Follow Me. Matthew chapter 20. Well, from generation to generation, there are certain phrases that are uttered by young children. And one of those phrases is, that's not fair. Doesn't matter your circumstances, doesn't matter if it was your mom or dad that was involved, doesn't matter if you were rich or poor, doesn't matter if you had a lot of siblings or none. All of us, when we were a kid, on probably multiple occasions, saw some situation and the little judge in us slammed down the gavel and declared aloud to all present, that's not fair. Kids consistently look at life through the lens of perceived fairness. And I say perceived because these events are often a judgment call. They got six french fries, I think I only got five. Yeah, we both got two scoops of ice cream, but I think their two scoops were bigger than my two scoops. We see life and we interpret life through the perception of justice. And we are consistently asking in a given circumstance, was that fair? What she got, or he got, or I got, was that fair? Did I get what I earned? Did I get what I deserved in that situation? And we can go on high alert when we think we saw someone get more than us, or more than we think they deserved. And let's be honest, church, we continue to wear those glasses of fairness into adulthood. We might not scream out loud like we used to. That's not fair. But that little judge is still on the bench. And when we believe something isn't fair, we in our heart, in our mind, can still be tempted inwardly to yell, that's not fair. And I share that with you this morning because as we come to Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is going to share with us a parable, a story that teaches us the truth about the kingdom of God and the subject of of fairness. The context of this parable is connected to what Peter has just asked in verse 27 of chapter 19. Jesus has just told the rich young ruler that to have eternal life, he must sell everything and follow him. Jesus tells him this to make the point that God doesn't share the throne with anyone or anything, including money and possessions. The rich young ruler's greatest passion could be money or it could be God, but it can't be both. And this made the rich young ruler sad, but it made Peter excited. Oh man, Peter thought. If sacrifice is what Jesus is calling us towards, we the disciples are going to make out like bandits. And he asked Jesus, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What then will we have? And Jesus answers him. Look at verse 28 of chapter 19. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so Jesus says to Peter, Oh, Peter, I am going to richly bless you. 
Everyone who is sacrificed in following Christ will be rewarded. That's a promise here. But as Jesus continues to speak, we see that he wants to make it clear to Peter and to the original disciples and to all Christians who later follow him that although he does richly bless, our standing is not based ultimately on our action, but on his grace. What we're going to learn this morning by looking at this parable is that no one is a part of the kingdom of God because they earned it or deserve it or that it's fair. Rather, all who are in the kingdom of God, enjoying the new heavens and new earth for all eternity with God, are there because of His great grace and generosity that we do not deserve. The the big truth of this parable in one sentence is our relationship with God and our inclusion in His kingdom are a result of His compassionate grace. Our relationship with God and our inclusion in His kingdom are a result of His compassionate grace. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we we do pray for the Cintrons this morning, Lord. We do pray for Esther and for Lewis and for Jessica, for Nancy, Lord, as she continues to heal, for the children, Lord, as they continue to process. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would meet them this morning in a unique way. We pray that you would comfort them, that you would encourage their hearts this morning, Lord. We are thankful, Lord, that you are at all places, at all times. And so you can meet with us and encourage us, and you can meet with them and encourage them. And as was prayed last night at the members' meeting, Lord, we pray that you would bring them back with us soon. We pray for this, Lord, and we pray for ourselves as we look at your word and we look at the topic of grace, that you would freshly encourage each of our hearts. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two points to structure our time. Two points as we unpack this parable. Point number one, the work day. Point number one, the work day. Look at verse one with me. I would encourage you, keep your Bibles open as we work through this. I'm not going to read it all at once. I want to, I want to read it and, and watch the story unfold kind of in real time. So in verse one, it says, for the kingdom of heaven is light. Jesus leaves no doubt regarding the subject of this parable when he says that. Parables have a purpose. Parables have a truth that it wants us to to focus in on. They're not just a good story. There's a point to them. And here we clearly see the point of this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. This informs us that the story is a description of how God operates And how God acts in bringing his people into his kingdom to enjoy a relationship together for all eternity. And Jesus says it's like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The vineyard would be the place where many grapes were being produced for the yearly wines. And it's right to assume that it's harvest time and the master of the house needs to hire a bunch of daily workers to bring in the harvest. In that culture, men who were willing and able to do this daily type of work would all gather in the marketplace, waiting for landowners like this one to arrive. 
The most zealous would get there before dawn, hoping to have the greatest likelihood of getting hired and obtaining a full day's wage. And we see in verse 2, that's exactly what happens. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the landowner goes into the marketplace, he selects a bunch of laborers, and in this situation, we see that he enters into an agreement with them. He agrees and they agree that they will work in his vineyard for the day and he will give them one denarius. That was the day's wage for a Roman soldier. So it was definitely a good wage to harvest some grapes. The parable tells us that after coming to an agreement with the workers, the landowner sends them into the vineyard and they start working. Then in verse 3, And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. So it's important to understand in this parable and in this culture that time was based on sunrise and sunset. So the third hour was three hours after the sunrise. Three hours, or the third hour, was another way to say three hours into the workday. We don't know the reason why the landowner goes back into the marketplace. Maybe he simply needed more workers to complete the process of bringing in the harvest. But no matter the reason he hires them, no matter the reason of that, the point is he goes to the marketplace again. And he hires even more workers. And what's interesting in the second time that he goes is that he doesn't enter into a financial agreement with them. So the first set, he says, I will pay you one denarius for the whole day. The second time, there is no such agreement. He doesn't tell them how much he will pay. He only says, whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right. And we see this is okay with the workers because they respond by taking him up on his invitation. It's likely that because the day had already begun, the workers left it to the owner to decide what they would make, knowing they were too late to make a full day's wage. The assumption is that they would receive some percentage of a denarius based on how long they were in the vineyard. But again, no matter the specifics, the the heart of the matter is that in taking this work, they are trusting the landowner to do right and to be fair to them. Look at verse 5 with me. So they went out, and going out again about the sixth hour, in the ninth hour, he did the same. So the landowner goes out again. So he goes out to the beginning of the day. He goes out the third hour. He goes out the sixth hour. He goes out the ninth hour. And in this sixth hour and ninth hour, so sixth hour around noon, ninth hour, kind of around 3 p.m., it says that Jesus says that he, quote, did the same thing. So we can assume that the landowner interacted with these workers like he did the third hour workers. He doesn't tell them how much he's going to pay them. He simply promises to do right by them. Then comes verse 6. And we start to realize this landowner is different than maybe all the others. Look at verse 6 with me. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. So 11th hour, 11 hours into the workday. 
Eleven hours since the sun has come up. The sun will be now setting soon. The workday will be over soon. And the landowner goes out one more time. And we're told by Jesus that he finds these people just standing there. And he asks them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because no one's hired us. That's a silly question. We're standing here because no one has hired us to work all day. And, and we see here in this parable that he says to them, come work for me. He says, go to the vineyard. And this time, not only is there no financial agreement, he doesn't even promise to do right by them, right? He doesn't say, I'm not going to tell you what you're going to make. We'll figure that later. I'll do right by you. He doesn't even say that. He doesn't even at- attach the job to his character. He just says, you've been standing here all day. Go into the vineyard. And their reaction says something about the life circumstances of these people. Think about this. Get, get your, your feet into their shoes. If these people even had a little bit of wealth, it seems likely at some point in, let's say, hour seven or eight or nine, that it just wasn't their day. You know, it's kind of people who go fishing because it's fun and people who go fishing because they need the fish. The people who just go for fun when the fish aren't biting, go home. When you need that fish, you stay out there as long as you need to to bring home a fish. And in the same way here, if these people had just a little bit of wealth in hour eight or nine or ten, they just would have gone home. Sort of hope for better work opportunities tomorrow, but they do not. They stay in the marketplace hoping that at some point someone would hire them and they could at least make something, even if it was one twelfth of what a full day's wage was. At least they're bringing something home. Point two. Point two, payday. Point one, workday. Point two, payday. Beginning in verse 8, Jesus tells us that the workday is now over. Look at that. I want you to visually look at that. Look at verse 7, 11th hour workers go into the vineyard. Verse 8, day's over. There's, there's a reason behind that. There's a reason Jesus does that. Don't let that be lost on you, church. That the landowner in verse 7 hires them. And then in the very next verse we learn, the evening came and the time for work was over. Jesus, in giving the details of this parable, is highlighting the shortness of the 11th hour workday. He wants us to, to see them go and immediately day's over. And because the day was over, the landowner says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So he says to the foreman, all right, we need to gather everybody, get them all together, work day's done, we need to pay them, start with the last, and then end with the first. Look at verse 9 with me. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, so those who had been there for around an hour, they approach him to be paid. Each of them received a denarius. Now, some of you have grown up with this parable. Others, maybe this is the first time. Look at it like it was the first time. Think about how shocking that would be. They were there one twelfth of the day and they get a full day's wage. 
And although Jesus does not state it specifically, I don't think it would be wrong to assume that the third and the sixth and the ninth hour workers also received a full day's wage, although they had also only worked part of the day. And here is what is interesting. When the eleventh hour workers got the full day's wage, the first hour workers at first were excited. Look at verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. They assumed if the 11th hour workers got a denarius, a full day's wage, then they would receive even more. But Jesus tells us in verse 10, the end of verse 10, that this was not the case. Each of them also received a denarius. And so they got what they were promised And in receiving it, their rejoicing turned to grumbling. Their excitement turned to anger. In verse 11, we are told, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That's not fair, they cried. The little judge in their heart brought the gavel down. That's not fair. The first hour workers were looking down their nose at the 11th hour workers. They look at it, church. I actually thought earlier in the week I missed the additional word and I realized the word wasn't there. They literally identify them in verse 11 as the last. Look at that. I'm sorry, verse 12. These last worked only one hour. They're not saying these people who have not begun to work until the 11th hour, they literally called them last. The last worked only one hour. That shows their heart towards those people. They're not even valuable. They're not even people. They're just, they're just the last. You know, we showed up early. We worked all day. We're busting our backsides in the hottest hours of the day. And these guys show up in the cool of the evening. They did not do as much as us. They did not sacrifice as much as us. And they get the same payment as us? Are you kidding me? That's not fair. These workers are clearly accusing the landowner that he is unjust. And Jesus, Jesus is quite wise, not surprisingly, as God. It's quite wise in the way he uses parables, because man, can he help us see our self-righteousness. Because right now, even, you might be thinking, that's not right. That's not fair. He is being unjust. I, I remember hearing the story of the, of the prodigal son, so just quick recap, if you've never heard that, there's two sons. One just screws it up royally and goes and takes the, his part of the inheritance and just blows it all kinds of worldly things. And there's this other older son who's back and he's kind of, in his estimation, doing everything right. And I remember reading that as a kid and thinking, 
Yeah, right. The older one, right? He's the good one in this story. Like, this is about how moral the good one is, right? And how great the older son is. And the older son should have been upset that they were throwing a party for the younger son. Not even realizing the point of it was to show our self-righteousness and what we think we've earned and what we deserve and the way we think God should throw a party for us. It was only after I got saved I realized the point of that is God's grace and that they both needed God's grace. And I think here in that same way, God just shows us if there's anything in us of a, yeah, they do deserve that. And in verse 13, we see the landowner's response. Look at what the landowner said. The landowner warmly but firmly says to the spokesman of this grumbling group, that he has not been unjust in his actions. Look at verse 13. He replied to one of them, so it's you know, kind of probably the spokesman of this grumbling group, friend, <clears throat> I am doing you no wrong. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. And he begins in a moment to ask three questions. But what the landowner is telling him here is that his compassion does not come at the harm of anyone else. The landowner here is not being Robin Hood. He is not doing something nice for the poor at the expense of the rich. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. And then he asks these questions. Question one, do, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Did you not agree with me? Did we not enter into an agreement? The answer, of course, is yes. The workers knew exactly what he promised to pay them for a day's work. They entered into a financial agreement, and at the end of the day, he did exactly what he promised to do. He was just towards them. He he was faithful to his promises. He did nothing towards these other people that undermined his justice to them. He tells them to take what belongs to them and go, saying, I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. That comment then flows to his second question. And this is a powerful question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The answer, of course, is again, yes. He is the landowner. He owns the vineyard. And he owns a great wealth. Those things belong to him. And he can be as compassionate and as generous as he wants to be. He then asks the final question. Or, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? That is lovingly a dagger of a question. Because the landowner highlights that the first workers are not grumbling ultimately about justice. They're not concerned about justice. They're not concerned about fairness. They're about envy and jealousy. We actually could translate this as the NASB does. Is your eye envious because I am generous? Is your eye envious because I am generous? They are angry because they are selfish. They take pride that they are first 
our workers. They see themselves as impressive, superior, and ultimately deserving of what they've received. Again, remember the phrase, you've made them equal to us. What is, when you, when you say that, when you say, you, you made them in a derogatory way, you've made them equal to us, what's the assumption? That they're not. That they're below us. That you've made them kind of something they're not. Instead of rejoicing in the fact that the landowner was so generous, they grumble because they are envious of how he treats them who they think are last. Instead of rejoicing, instead of celebrating, instead of being grateful for this landowner, they are proud and envious and selfish. And they think what they got they deserved, and they think what others got was wrong. And Jesus ends this parable by stating, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Church, the primary truth of this parable is that God, who is the landowner, has the prerogative to be gracious, compassionate, and generous to whomever he desires, whenever he desires. He owns it all. He owns it all. And as the owner of it all, he can use it in the manner he thinks is best. And we shouldn't respond by begrudging his generosity, but celebrating it. To be able to see him as the ultimate landowner and say, God, you are so gracious and we are so thankful that you are a generous king. Instead of saying, that's not fair. You shouldn't treat that person like that. You shouldn't treat that person like that. And you should give me what I deserve. In our time that remains, I want us to spend some time applying this truth to our lives. These parables, again, are not just kind of good stories. There are, they're stories, they're, they're not true, like this didn't really happen, right? It was a, it was a story Jesus really gave. But it's only as valuable as us taking it and applying it to our lives. And I want to begin to apply it by asking you a question. And I'm going to ask it in a couple different ways. But but here's my question. Where in your life are you viewing things through a perspective similar to the first hour workers? Where in your life are you viewing things through a perspective similar to that of the first hour workers? Two, Two other ways to ask that same question. What in your life are you tempted to believe you deserve from God? And you're tempted to bitterness when you don't get it. What in your life are you tempted to believe you deserve from God? And you're tempted to bitterness when you don't get it. Or, final way to ask the same question, where is God being generous to others? And you are tempted to yell, that's not fair. I'll repeat those very quickly. Where in your life... Are you viewing things through a perspective similar to the first hour workers? What in your life are you tempted to believe you deserve from God and you're tempted to bitterness when you don't get it? Where is God being generous to others and you're tempted to yell, that's not fair? Probably a lot of ways we could answer this. My encouragement to you would not be to try to figure out all of those areas. Uh, David Pallison wonderful Christian counselor, talks about one bit of truth to one bit of life. I've always appreciated that. Instead of trying to figure out all the areas this is in operation, where's one? 
and applying that, going to God over that, praying about that, applying the gospel to that. What does it look like to grow? You know, for that to be uh, what we do and to recognize these are issues we're going to be working through the rest of our lives. And so instead of being overwhelmed or condemned, just what, what is the next step in your walk with Christ? Let me give you, uh, to, to maybe help you to answer that, I'm not going to, like, in an organized way, which is usually how I am, is how my brain works, but kind of in a more of a uh, illustrative type of way or application kind of way. Let me give you three categories. Trials, blessing, sacrifice. I think in looking at trials, usually the ones we go through, blessings, both the ones we receive and the ones we see in others, and sacrifice, the sacrifice God calls us to. I think when we look at trials, blessing, and sacrifice, we can apply where we are tempted to be first-hour workers. So let me, let me unpack this just a little bit. Are you tempted at times to grumble ultimately to the Lord when in your perception you're walking through trials that it doesn't seem like others are being asked by God to walk through? Are you tempted at times to grumble ultimately to the Lord when in your perception you're walking through trials that it doesn't seem like others are being asked by God to walk through. Let's be honest, church. If you're on Facebook, I'm sure 99% of us have one person or one couple or one family or one you know group of friends, one person coming to your mind even me right now, that you've had the thought, I don't think they've ever needed to walk through a trial their entire life. And it's possible their kids are sinless. I've seen the proof on Facebook. Their kids, they're always smiling. They always look happy. I don't think they've ever walked through anything hard their entire life. And you look at your life, and you look at your marriage or your children, and you recognize, I'm a mess. God, why am I a mess? Why are my children sinners when it seems like theirs aren't? Now, we know their kids are sinners. We know that Everyone is walking through trials, but there is a reality that there are certain trials you're walking through that others are not. That's a reality. That's not, you know, there's kind of, a, kind of the fake Facebook world, and we don't always intentionally mean to do this, but, but there is a reality that there are certain trials God has for you that he doesn't give to others. And there are certain things you want, good things that you want, that God in his sovereignty has given others he has not given you. That, that's true. That's just, that's life, isn't it? And when we bump up against that in Facebook or in conversation or just in our minds, how do we respond? How do you respond? Do we celebrate God's grace? Do we celebrate God's generosity? Do we celebrate his goodness or do we grow bitter? Do we accuse God of being unjust, of being not fair? Kel and I, Kel and I know a, a couple. I don't think anybody here would know them. They're not, they're not from Pennsylvania, but it was like every Facebook post was, "Hey, we're going on vacation again." I can, you just got, got back from vacation. You literally were on vacation like three days ago, and they're like, three days of work. You know what? Cruise time. And I'm like, I, how are they doing this? How are they going on a cruise again? 
I didn't do well with that. I had to unfriend them because I was just tempted in my heart. I was just like, oh, another cruise. That's that so wonderful for you. And it is. I mean, like, if, you know, they're a godly couple. They love the Lord. They, they serve Jesus. And God has just given them the ministry of cruise living. I don't know. Maybe they're like gospel evangelism I'm unaware of, you know, but all I saw was like, ah, oh, another cruise. And, and so like, I need just to get in there and, oh God, thank you so much for your, just your goodness and provision in those ways. So when we think about trials, when we think about, but God blessing other people in other ways, do we rejoice in the character of God? Do we rejoice in the character of the great landowner, trusting him for the things we don't have that we desire? Trusting his goodness in regards to the trials he calls us to. Or do we grow bitter? I think this can be especially tempting when in our perception we're doing more for the Lord, again in our perception, that we're doing more for the Lord than those who are being blessed. We can be quickly become like those first hour workers, demanding our pay and more. God, don't you see all I'm doing for you? Don't you see the sacrifice? Don't you see how little they have done in comparison? And yet you are, you are blessing them like that? I also think when we have that mindset of sacrifice, then the things we have been given don't look like gifts anymore. They look like payment. So it's not just the things others have that we don't have. It's the things we have. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? Right there, the, God knows there's this temptation we have to look at the things we have and to say, well, I did that. I earned that. I deserve that. Church, God's response in these moments, whether it's the trial, the blessing of others, the things we have, God's response is the same as the point of the parable, son or daughter. It is all of grace. It's all of grace. It was my grace that saved you. It's my grace that has gifted you. It is my grace that sustains you. And by my grace, I am working out all things together for good, including that trial, including that thing you don't have. Do you and I look at grace on that level that the things you do not have are a gift of grace? To really truly believe that God is so sovereign and so loving that he, he hasn't given you something that's a good thing, that there's a good reason behind it. He would say to us, he does say to us here, don't grumble over my grace. Don't grumble over my compassion. Celebrate and rejoice in it when it comes to you and when it comes to others. Church, when you see God's generosity to someone else, If your response, if my response is, that's not fair, recognize you're not wrong. If you say, that's not fair that they are receiving that, recognize you're not wrong. What's wrong is the assumption that you or I do deserve it. Yeah, God's generosity is undeserved. If anyone is being blessed anywhere, they don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. Yeah, that's that's not fair in the sense of they didn't work to get that. The problem is that we turn that and say, but I do. Or if they get it, then I now do deserve it. God's generosity is undeserved. It's undeserved to them. It's undeserved to you. It's undeserved to us. 
truly the only thing any one of us deserves is punishment for our sins. Everything else we receive is undeserved grace. Your breath right now that you're breathing, undeserved grace. This culture, what a beautiful day. I was just like, I survived another winter. I made it, Lord. And you know, I went out this morning. It was a little chilly, but you can feel spring in the air. There are unbelievers out there right now enjoying the day. Undeserved grace. Undeserved grace that they make it out of today alive. Grace, grace, grace. Do you and I believe that this morning? I know we believe it in our minds. Many of us believe, yes, all of grace. But in my heart, do I believe it? Am I functionally applying all of grace? If you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, do you believe that you're standing for God? Your inclusion in the kingdom of heaven is by grace alone. And I want to specifically ask you if you were saved as a young child or you've been a, a Christian for many years. Do you still believe it? If you've been a Christian for a long time, do you still believe it? May we remember it was and is and will ever be a gift of grace. Don't, as the years go on, allow your service to God, your just years of faith, your many prayers, your many times in the Word, slowly become a badge of honor. And one time met someone, we were talking about Christianity, talking about salvation. I said, how, how do you know you're saved? How can we be saved? You know what she said? I've been a member of the same church for 40 years. There is no salvation by attendance in a local church. How sad it would be for us to be amazed by grace at the start and then slowly over the years begin to say, you know, I think I've earned this now. I think I've been at this long enough. And then to grumble when God is gracious to others. May we recognize that every Christian, no matter how long you've been saved, have been saved, have been rescued by God, by His grace. There will never be a point when we've earned it. We've never going to deserve it because all those years are His grace. All those years of sustaining grace was His grace. I would suggest the greatest heresy of all time is the belief that you and I can earn our way into relationship with God. Over the last couple of years, I've been able to teach a history class and it's a Christian co-op, so I can take my kind of U.S. history side and my just my Christianity and mush it together. And we talked about different things over the years, not just U.S. history, world history. And I said, you can take every single religion except Christianity and smush them together. They, they call the gods different names. They, they have different rules. They have different things. Push them all together. Earn it. That's all the other religions combined. Climb your ladder to God. And then we have Christianity over here. No, you can't. God had to come for you. God had to rescue you. It's just this lie. If there's anyone here, here, here's my burden for this week. If there's anyone here that thinks here's going to be judgment day, you standing before God and him having kind of like a scale over here and him knowing everything and saying, well, let's, let's see if the good outweighs the bad on this one. And if the good outweighs the bad, then you're in. And if it doesn't, you're out. That is the greatest heresy of all time. Because no one's getting in on that. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus, who is God, says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. 
If you are not in Christ, if Christ has not covered you by his life, death, and resurrection, if he did not, if you did not repent and trust in him, here's the question on Judgment Day. Were you perfect? Were you perfect? Sadly, no. Hell forever. Because God is perfect. He's not okay with a little bit of sin. We are, right? The, the, the assumption and the more good weighing out your bad is, well, a little bit of bad's okay. I mean, like, we're all imperfect, right? Nobody's perfect. God is. And He is just. And so if you would recognize that you are not perfect, flee to Christ right now and He will save you. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Romans 3, I'll never forget reading Romans 3 as an 18, 19 year old, and just no one is good. All fall short of the glory of God. Man, that blew up my little righteousness real quick, didn't it? Me being kind of the older brother in that prodigal son story, the, the one who was always there, the one always kind of doing right, not really, but in my estimation I was. You would have given me the truth serum. I think I'm a pretty good guy. Not perfect, pretty good guy. And Romans 3 says, No, you're not. So now I was faced with, is God right or am I right? And God gave me the grace to realize he's always right. And I am not. All of us are desperate. All of us are in need of grace. And God provides that grace through Christ, through his own love. Right? He sends Christ by his love, by his grace. And, and what is so wonderful is that the 11th hour Christian is just as forgiven as the first hour worker. Right? I mean, think about, again, the context here as we move to the close. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking about the disciples. He's talking to the disciples, right? He's talking to them. They're saying, God, Jesus, all we've done. And he says to them, yes, yes, I will bless you. I will richly bless you for all you've done. Not as a payment, not because you earn it, because as a loving father, he loves to bless his children. And these disciples are going to go through massive sacrifice, aren't they? Massive persecution. And that thief on the cross is just as forgiven as them. We don't want to look at the thief on the cross and think, well, you know, I can get saved at any point here. I can wait till the end. No, go now. You do not know when Christ will return. You do not know if you'll have the opportunity to think or to speak in that those last moments. But oh, that example that there is still time. Brother or sister, if you have family members or friends that they're not saved yet, and it's so on your heart, keep praying, keep sharing. The 11th hour workers show us God's great compassion. There's still hope as long as Christ has not returned. And we pray that God would save many. And I would say this 11th hour. So of course we want to live for God. Of course we want to be all in. Of course we want to do great things for Him. But our standing is on His grace. on His generosity. Allow me to share a quote, then a comment, and then we were going to sing. Tim Keller says, If we are saved by grace alone, This salvation is a constant source of amazed delight. Nothing is mundane or matter-of-fact about our lives. It is a miracle we are Christians. 
And the gospel, which creates bold humility, should give us a far deeper sense of humor and joy. Now, I'll close with this. As children, we wear the glasses of fairness. May we as Christians wear the gospel goggles, as I've heard Kevin DeYoung call it. Lens is not of fairness, but of of grace. Looking at your life, not looking around saying, not fair, not fair, not fair, this is what I deserve, this is what I earn, but to look at life and say, God, thank you. Thank you for your grace here. And thank you for your grace there. And thank you for your grace in this area. I don't deserve this or this or this or this. That our hearts would be filled with gratitude to God. I lied. i got to read one more quote. Worship team, if you'd come back up. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the following. It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing should comfort and help and strengthen us is that the thing that helped us in the beginning is what will be there at the end. Not that we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Let us stand and let us sing to this gracious God. Amen, brothers and sisters, to never cease thanking him for his grace. Ben, thank you for that message. There's going to be a sign-up sheet in the back for the ministry of cruise living. And I don't think we'll have a problem getting that filled up. That was classic. Thanks for that. Also, there was some real serious points that Ben had that I, I think are really vital for our church. Having a mindset of I'm doing more for the Lord than those who I'm looking around and I'm judging are being more blessed than I am. And where that can lead us. Ben admonished us well from the Word that what can happen with that mindset is that grace stops looking like grace and starts looking like payment. Remember that? That is, that's tragic when that happens in our lives and we must guard ourselves from that. Ben, that was, that was so insightful. And then brothers and sisters, there was a line that Ben mentioned briefly that I think we, we've got to really hook on to. The things that I don't have are a gift to me. The things that I don't have are a gift to me. Have you ever thought that way about your life? I think there was wisdom from the Word through that point. 
And in closing, I just want to thank God as well. Because He's the kind of God that as 2 Peter chapter 3 says, we do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I was so thankful for the reminder that Ben gave us that God is a God who's in the marketplace in the 11th hour looking and beckoning all of us to come in. And if it wasn't for Him being that kind of God, we wouldn't be here, brothers and sisters. We are here because of the patience of God. We deserve to be in hell right now, but the good news is we're here in this church. We're saved. We are rescued by the grace of God and by the blood of the Lamb. And it's because God is a patient God. He could have brought the gavel down upon us when we, while we were still sinners. And instead, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us instead. He is a gracious God. And let us give Him praise and never cease to thank Him for His grace. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Father, we want to thank you for being this kind of God. Lord, we marvel and we do not begrudge you for your generosity. Lord, we look and we want to say thank you. Thank you for saving us when you did. And Lord, as we look upon others, help us to have the eyes that that you have toward those who are coming into your kingdom in the 11th hour. Lord, help us to celebrate and rejoice. Protect us Lord God, from the, having the heart of the older brother in the field who, who looks and can't rejoice as we see the prodigal coming home. Almighty God, please help us, Lord God, to be a people who are amazed by grace and not self-righteously smug. Lord God, looking down upon others. Lord, help us as a church to be marked by as people who are amazed by your grace all the time. And I pray that you would bless us as a church body in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we thank our wonderful Heavenly Father for how awesome and amazing He is? Thank you so much, Lord. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week.